0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 9 this morning, the ninth chapter of Isaiah. And so uh, we began a new series last week called Jesus, Our Hope. And so for three weeks, we're focused on prophecies about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. So last week, we were in Isaiah chapter 7, and today we're in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. And this is a famous prophecy of Jesus, for to us, a child is born. Isaiah 9, and let's look together in God's Word at verses 1 through 7. As we prepare to dig into it, Isaiah chapter 9, and let's look at the first seven verses. God's word says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder will do this. Father, we thank you for what you have accomplished and for what you will accomplish through your Son. And we pray that you would take this glorious prophecy which tells us about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and that as Christ is lifted up that you would draw all of us closer to Him today. Lord, in whatever Situation we were when we came into this service Whatever needs we have in our lives and you know what they are whatever challenges that we're facing We pray that you would help us to lock in On you right now And that we would allow your spirit to speak to us and that as christ is lifted up That we would have a vision of him that is so glorious That it would it would eliminate everything else Help us to see Christ today in this prophecy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the symptoms of life in a broken, fallen world is that sometimes even our sleep would be punctuated by something dark and tragic. And most all of us have had the experience of dealing with nightmares. And I don't know about you, but my worst ones are that something bad has happened to somebody that I love. And maybe you've had the experience of waking up from a nightmare, and it slowly kind of hits you that, you know, this this was only a dream. This isn't real. And. In those situations, I, I just want to go around and I see Melissa's there and I see my children are in bed and they're sleeping peacefully and I just, I just want to grab them and, and hug them because the nightmare was not true. What we see here at, in Isaiah is that Israel's worst nightmare which we talked about last week in chapter 7, their worst nightmare is going to come true. And we saw last week in chapter 7 that, that King Ahaz, rather than trusting in God for protection, Ahaz decides to trust in the Assyrians of all people for protection. And the prophecy of Isaiah there in chapter 7 was that what Ahaz trusted in more than God is going to be the very thing that destroys him and his nation. The Assyrians are going to come. And it is going to be an incredibly dark time. And so what we see throughout chapter 8 is that Isaiah is continuing to prophesy about what this is going to be like when the Assyrians come And as he finishes chapter 8, in the last verse of chapter 8, it couldn't be any darker. Because he says in the last verse of Isaiah 8, They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah says, this is what it's going to be like. Because of your failure to trust God, this is what's going to happen. And so at the end of Isaiah 8, you have just darkness. It can't get any more dark. It's thick darkness, deep darkness. But then, at the beginning of chapter 9, everything changes. Light breaks in. So this is the first thing that we see in this prophecy. This this breaking in of the light. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Do you see the abruptness of the shift here between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, you just have this, 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 this abrupt shift. It's like everything reverses. Things are going one way, it just can't get any worse, and then suddenly everything just reverses. At this time, 74 years ago, our nation was still reeling from the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And if the American public had known the truth about what had really happened on December 7th, it would have been even worse. It's a good thing they didn't know. They would have been freaking out because it was so bad. And a good chunk of our Pacific fleet was at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. Throughout the early months of 1942, that winter and spring, the Japanese were going to continue rampaging. Across the Pacific and winning victory after victory. It was a dark time for our country. In late May, a huge Japanese fleet with four of their best aircraft carriers sailed out to administer the coup de grace and to finish what was left of the American fleet. But due to good intelligence, we knew they were coming. And on the morning of June 4th, 1942, American dive bombers pierced the clouds, swooped down on the Japanese fleet at midway. And within the span of six minutes, three Japanese aircraft carriers were sinking. And the fourth would be sunk The next morning. It was one of the most stunning reversals in the history of warfare. That's the kind of reversal that we see here. I mean things are just going one way. It is so dark. Deep darkness. Thick darkness. And light breaks in. And everything changes. And everything begins to reverse. Now in the gospel of John... When John tells about the coming of Christ, he doesn't tell us about the Nativity. doesn't give us all the details that Luke and Matthew do about, uh, about Bethlehem and the, the manger and all of that. When John tells us about the coming of Christ into the world, he uses the metaphor of light. What do we see at the beginning of, of, of John's Gospel? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What would happen if there was no light? What would happen if the sun went out? You know, scientists tell us that by the end of the day it would be zero degrees and it would continue plummeting until it would stabilize at minus 400 degrees. Photosynthesis would stop immediately. No more plants. No more oxygen. No more life. You know, this was the world spiritually without Christ. It's appropriate that Jesus was born at night because it was night In the world, deep darkness, and then light breaks in. Now, it begins in Galilee. The ministry of Jesus begins to take place in the northern part of the country in Galilee. The light begins to to shine. And so, in in, in verse 1, Isaiah tells us there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, when the Assyrians came and they were going to come, they were going to come from the north And so the first part of the country to get hit was going to be the northern part of the country, Galilee. Whenever invaders would come from the the north, Galilee would get hit first. In fact, when Isaiah talks here about the way of the sea, okay, this is what historians sometimes call the, the way of the conquerors. When invaders would come from the north, they would come through this this way of the conquerors or the way of the sea. It was Galilee. Galilee would get hit first. And that's going to happen. When the Assyrians come, Isaiah is saying Galilee is going to get it first and worst. But when Jesus comes, Isaiah is saying that, that Galilee, who suffered all of this anguish was going to be the first to receive the blessing of the ministry of Christ as this light of the ministry of Jesus begins to, to, to shine in, in, the, in the region of, 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 of Galilee. And so Galilee was going to receive this incredible uh, blessing. In fact, guys, I can't, I can't forward here, and so you're going to have to do it for me, okay? Okay. Um, There we go. Okay, so um, as Jesus begins to minister, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, it begins around Capernaum. Okay, he's raised in Nazareth in Galilee. The early part of his ministry takes place around the Sea of Galilee. His home base of operations is Capernaum. So, Matthew, in talking about, in chapter 4 of Matthew, in talking about this early ministry of Christ, What does he do? He goes back to Isaiah 9 to talk about what is happening. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. The light of Christ is breaking in. Second, we see here the character of the light. What's it going to be like? <clears throat> What is the the light of Christ like in its character? It's going to be a time of rejoicing. Isaiah says in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says this is going to be a time of, of delirious joy. This land that was in such darkness and anguish is now going to be rejoicing because of what God is going to do. He says in verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now we just studied the book of Judges. So Midian was very significant, right? It's associated with Gideon. So you remember the story of Gideon? You remember... Um, Gideon was this guy who was like the weakest in his clan. He's a very unlikely savior for his nation. You know, there's nothing special about his clan. There's nothing special about him. When we first meet Gideon in the book of Judges, remember what he was doing? He was down in a wine press trying to thresh wheat in a wine press of all places because he was so terrified of who? The Midianites. The mighty Midianite army. And and what did God tell him to do? God said, I want you to reduce your forces. (laughs) You have too many soldiers to win this victory against this mighty army, Gideon. So, what does God do? God reduces Gideon's forces from 32,000 to 300. God wins this incredible victory over Midian with a very unlikely savior. And in a very unlikely way. And of course, as all the judges do in Judges. Okay, Gideon just foreshadows the real Savior. Okay, the real Deliverer is Jesus. But who also was going to look like an unlikely Savior. Right? He's... You know, he's born in, uh, his, he doesn't come from a family of power or influence or wealth. And he's born in an animal pen, and his feed, his, his, his crib is a feeding trough for animals. And then he's raised in this little backwater town in Galilee, uh, Nazareth. You know, he doesn't go to all the, the, the right schools or, you know, he doesn't uh, he doesn't uh, have an army at his disposal. He, he doesn't the whole political office, you know, on and on and on. He He's a very unlikely savior. And, and then look at his look at his original followers. You know, they weren't numerous. It was a little band of pretty ordinary people that God was going to use to just change the world. Right. And so his ministry, the, the, what happens with the Midianites and Judges really points to the ultimate Savior and his ultimate victory. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, in this prophecy and in many Old Testament prophecies what you see is sort of a, a seamless moving back and forth between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Okay, so we see in this that in this prophecy, right? We see things that pertain to the first coming of Christ. To us, a child is born. But then we see language that really points us beyond the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. Because Isaiah is talking here about a time when there is going to be no more violence, no more war. See, he's prophesying to a people who are going to face war, who are going to face bloodshed. The Assyrians are going to come. It's going to be incredibly violent. There are are going to be garments that are going to be rolled and stained in blood. And Isaiah knows that. But even beyond that, you know, this is a world that is often characterized by violence and blood. Whether it's the Assyrians or the streets of Paris, France, or San Bernardino, California, or the Middle East, or the streets of America. I mean, on and on and on. I mean, we live in a broken world that is often characterized by violence and bloodshed and war. And Isaiah says there is coming a time when there is going to be none of that. In fact, in another prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 2, he has already said this. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah is saying here in, in, in the prophecy in chapter 2 and verse 4. As he is saying here in, in chapter 9 and verse 5. You know, there is coming a time when, when, when everything that has characterized the shedding of blood and violence. Okay, that all of these things, you know, the warrior's boot, you know, which symbolizes war, um, the garment stained with blood. He's saying there's coming a time when Jesus comes again. There's coming a time when all of these things are going to just be thrown into the bonfire of God's grace. No more violence. No more bloodshed. no, No more war. When Jesus comes again to rule and to reign, we should pray for the second coming of Christ. Our Lord come. Third, we see here something about the source of the light. So where do all these good things come from? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who fulfills this description? Who could be a child and yet Mighty God? Who but Jesus? Ray Ortland says this. Look at Jesus. As the Wonderful Counselor, He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow Him. As the Mighty God, He defeats His enemies easily. Let's hide behind Him. As the Everlasting Father, He loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy Him. As the Prince of Peace, He reconciles us while we are still His enemies. Let's welcome His dominion. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now did you ever think about this phrase? Many of you, you've heard this prophecy before. And you've probably said these words before. But did you think about the meaning of this? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, when Christ comes again and renews all things... And there's a new heaven and a new earth, and he, Jesus is ruling and reigning, and the government is on his shoulder. Okay, it's a perfect world, and yet, God just only continues to do new things <laughs> and make it better. In other words, it, it's, it's beautiful and it's perfect, but of this increase, there will be no In, in other words, it's going to continue to increase. Again, I think Ray Ortland expresses this well. We will be there to enjoy his triumph forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come a moment when we say this is the limit. He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, every new moment will be better than the last. Now this is what C.S. Lewis captures at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. Throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis paints this this vision of the work of Christ. And of course the lion, Aslan, represents Jesus. But at the end of the last battle, Lewis just pictures what it's going to be like at the consummation of all things. You know, when Christ comes again. To rule and to reign. You know, what's that going to be like? Of his increase, there will be no end. It's perfect and yet it just keeps continuing to get better. Lewis says this. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I could not write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is greater than the one before. Of his increase, there will be no end. He says in verse 7, that when Christ comes again, uh, he will reign on the throne of David. Now, last time, we talked about this some, because Ahaz, remember, he's a Davidic king. He is part of the house of David. And yet he fails miserably. Does the fact that Ahaz's reign come to an end mean that God's promises and the Davidic covenant have come to an end? What had God promised to David? In the Davidic covenant. And we see it in 2 Samuel 7. God said to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But then the house of David falls. Ahaz Ahaz falls. Isaiah says, It's going to happen. The Assyrians are coming. Your, Your reign is going to come to an end. What about God's promises? What about his promises to the house of David? So, when Christ comes, the gospel writers are very careful to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that Jesus is the Davidic king who is coming to reign and fulfill those promises. So, you see language like this. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. What do the shepherds, the, the, the angels, announce to the shepherds on the hillside? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And when Paul begins to unfold the glorious gospel of Christ, In the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul just shows this this whole majestic plan of God. This good news of God. How does Paul begin in the book of Romans when he talks about the gospel? He says this. He says this gospel is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the Davidic King, coming to reign. And when He comes again, He will rule and reign. And what is that going to be like? What is His reign going to be characterized by? Isaiah tells us in verse 7, with justice, and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Listen, even the best governments today can only tweak what is wrong ultimately. Because our ultimate problems are not political, they're spiritual. You know, and so even the, the, the best governments, can, they can tweak things and make this or that better. What they can't deal with is evil that makes things wrong to begin with when Christ comes again and the government is on His shoulder, He's not coming to tweak this or that. He he is coming to, to destroy evil so that the justice and the righteousness that we long for, but which seems so elusive, it's going to happen. And you know what? We're going to be there As believers, we're we're going to be there with resurrection bodies. Philippians 3.21 says, He's going to transform these lowly bodies of ours to be like His glorious body. 1 John 3.2 says that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. We are going to dwell in this this new heaven and earth with, with glorified bodies. Bodies not subject to... Disease or illness or aging and praise God not subject to sin anymore It's all gone And there's going to be justice and righteousness as Christ rules and, and reigns Finally the gift of the light Do you notice how all these glorious things God does unilaterally <laughs> This is not a cooperative effort between us and God. All of these things, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, these are things that God accomplishes. Unilaterally, purely by grace. What does he say here in in verse 6? To us a child is born, to us a son is given. It is a gift. When he talks about the things that God has prepared in the future... What what does he say? How does he tie all of this together at the end of verse 7? He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The gospel is not a philosophy of life. It's not like, you know, advice to try to make life better. No, the gospel is good news about what God has done. Not what we should be doing, but what He's already done. <clears throat> he has given His Son. His Son has taken upon Himself the sins of all who will trust in Him. His Son is risen, ascended, coming again. The Lord does this. This is good news. The issue is whether or not we believed it. There are a lot of things on earth we can't count on, right? You know, there's lots, lots and lots of things that we can't count on. Um, but let me tell you, you can count on the promises of God. And the Bible tells us that ultimately, all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Christ. You know, look at what Paul says about the promises of God here and Jesus He says in 2 Corinthians 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Him being Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. You know, the issue is have you said yes to God's yes? (laughs) Henry Nouwen says this, songs, good feelings, beautiful liturgies, nice presents, big dinners, and sweet words do not make Christmas. Christmas is saying yes to something beyond all emotions and feelings. Christmas is saying yes to a hope based on God's initiative, which has nothing to do with what I think or feel. Christmas is believing that the salvation of the world is God's work and not mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gift. The gospel is about a gift. It is about your initiative. It is about your accomplishment. Lord, would you give us the grace to simply say yes to the yes that you have already said in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you're here today and there's a need in your life, if you just need ministry in some way, uh, we are here for you. If God's working in your life to to come to know Him or know more about Him in a personal way, uh, we are here for you. If if you say, uh, you know, I want to be a part of what God is doing here at this church family, uh, please know we are here for you. You're welcome to come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I ascend and fallen short of your glory. God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and My email is pastor at fbcsupport.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.